Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here today. It's good to be gathering together in worship here in the West Auditorium and to those who are in the East as well. I'm very glad you're with us. Guests, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and we're very glad that you have chosen to worship our Lord and Savior with us today. I invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to uh, Luke chapter 11. Luke is um, all three quarters of the way through the Bible, maybe, somewhere in that neighborhood, okay? And if you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to stop by the welcome desk and grab one as you leave today. As you're looking there, just a, a brief note about something coming up in January. In January, uh, we're going to have, an, what we're, we've never done this before, but we're going to have an orchestra weekend. When we say orchestra, we're thinking there's lots of people in the congregation who may have played a stringed instrument in high school, or maybe you blow a trombone or something or other, or you've got children who are doing that right now, and you go, when am I ever going to hear them do something in church? So we're shooting for that for the third weekend of January, the 19th and 20th. We're writing special music so that since it's a long time since you played that trombone, it'll be a little bit easier. Okay, and so I'm hoping we have maybe 40, 50 people up here, including your kids. So make note of that and get ready. And if you need more information, by all means, reach out to us in the office, okay? So uh, Luke chapter 11 today. I want to begin by uh, pointing out that this is the time of year when there's a lot of chatter about colds and viruses and fist bumps. We don't shake hands so much. We do fist bumps, of course. And um, why? Well, I don't want what you got and you don't want what I got, basically, right? And um, we want to stay healthy. We want to stay ahead of any curve there might be regarding colds and everything. And so Apparently, that's been on the thoughts of city officials, not only here and around the world at our present time, but many years ago, the early part of the 20th century, the city officials of the borough of East Poplar in London, England, were looking at the infant mortality rights, infant mortality rates, pardon me, of um, a, a neighborhood and an area that was, well, can we just say that was under-resourced, and a lot of people were living in pretty rough housing, Lots of brick buildings that were very tall. And um, the local doctor realized that, okay, we're losing so many babies. Maybe, maybe we need to get them just to have a little bit more fresh air since they're, they're cooped up in these tall buildings all the time. What would it be like to get them to have more fresh air? And he suggested, hey, take your babies outside when they're sleeping or when they're at, at night. Open the windows and so they get rosy cheeks. I mean, now we all know rosy cheeks doesn't whatever the case. He's trying to, he says, they need more fresh air. So the city officials came up with a brilliant idea. We're going to put babies outside the windows of all these tenement buildings, six and seven stories tall. How'd they do that? They built cages and they put their children in them to sit out there in the cold. Now, nothing to me says health and safety like a cage attached to an old brick building, crumbling brick, decaying bolts, and put your baby there and say, I've got a bouncing little baby girl. Well, hopefully not bouncing, but you know what I mean. Uh, But nonetheless, they tried. They were were hoping, I I get it. I get parents want to say, we all want to say for ourselves and for our kids, we want our kids to be healthy. We'll go to any end to do that. Anything we can do to foster good health. We take it on. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we'd say also we want a healthy, not only healthy emotional lives and healthy physical lives, we also want a healthy spirituality as well. And um, that means if you follow Jesus Christ, he has an expectation that we're going to replicate his, his ministry. 
that we're going to care for the sick. We're going to provide emotional health to people. We're going to impact those in need. We'll visit people in the hospital and in prison. We'll welcome strangers. In a nutshell, we are to be representing Jesus Christ as light of the world. Jesus himself said, I'm the light of the world. And we have a responsibility then to carry that on. In the 2,000 years since he died and, went to, and rose again and went to heaven, it has been the responsibility of the church to be the light for the world. In recent weeks, we've been examining how the world of Jesus' day is probably similar to our time. The world of Jesus' day, they were looking for some light. As a matter of fact, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah in ancient Israel said, hey, there's a moment that's going to come in a little village called Bethlehem. And this is what he said. 700 years before Jesus was born, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. Wow. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And that's what we experience. That's what we acknowledge. Hey, this is the result of Jesus coming. We know that Jesus came in Bethlehem and the government of the cosmos is on his shoulders. By the way, have you ever noticed that there was a lot of singing when Jesus showed up in Bethlehem and in the days leading up to that? I mean, the story of Jesus' arrival, <laughs> to me it almost sounds like, if you will, a, a modern day musical. Here's my sense, Okay. You got, if you go to a musical or you watch it on television, you got these two characters talking and suddenly one of them bursts into song. Isn't that what you do at your house? You know, you talk, well, I'm feeling so emotionally overwhelmed, I'm going to sing about it. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? But in musicals, they do. And um, I guess that's because the song increases the emotional impact. I mean, think of a movie maybe you've seen called The Sound of Music. Maria is about to leave the, uh, the nunnery and she's talking to the head nun, the mother abbess. And instead of the nun saying, well, just go on, what does she do? She starts singing, climb every mountain. So I wonder if, that's, if, that, if that moment would have been as powerful if there hadn't been singing. Probably not. She would have said, oh, just go up over the hill there and you'll be fine. But no, she just climb every mountain, off they go, right? In the story of Jesus' birth, it seems that at each moment, there's this ever-increasingly powerful story that, and, and, and as, as the climax goes, every time somebody sings another song, you've got Mary singing when she learns she's going to have a baby. You've got Zechariah. He, he starts singing when he learns that he and his wife are going to have John the Baptist. And you've got Simeon, the old man. And then you have the shiny and ever-bright heavenly host recognize that the birth of the Messiah is too awesome for everyday speech and the superabundant grace God forces itself out in song. They sing praises to God. They proclaim devotion to the glory of God. Listen to the devotion again. Listen to the adoration. Listen to the song.
Friends, the songs of Advent, they declare the glory of God's light in Jesus Christ. And now, as his representatives, we are the light of the world. We are those responsible to bring Christ's message to those living in light. But what if, what if your spiritual health, in an effort to do that, what if your spiritual health is kind of like you're the, you're the baby six floors up stuck in a cage and you go, I don't know how much this cold air is good for me and I don't know that this cage is going to, what if, if this cage is going to hold? You want, what if it's that's where you are? Jesus spoke to that issue. Luke chapter 11, if you'll read there with me, okay? Luke 11 reads this way. No one lights a lamp. This is verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Jesus is addressing a problem here. Did you catch it? We've said that the birth of Jesus and the light that he brings causes the world to sing. It brings the land living in darkness get to see this glorious light. That's how Isaiah put it. But here in Luke 11, here is Jesus in the middle of his adult ministry. He's into ministry. He's doing it and he recognizes, hey, there could be a problem with the way in which you're managing this light. He basically says, you're my followers. You're living this out. And if you do that, there should be a light and you would never light a lamp and put, a, put it under a bowl. That's just silly. That's not common sense. But then he goes on to acknowledge, well, what we see and what we take in might mess with the light within us. Jesus puts it this way. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, what happens then? Your body is also full of darkness. Jesus says, if you bring the wrong source of light into your soul, it will have an impact upon you. It will cause darkness to increase within you. As a matter of fact, you can think of it, if you will, like an infection. Here's, here's what I mean. In the 1950s, in St. Louis, there was a medical doctor, Louise Rice. She believed that... Um, Nuclear testing in the areas around St. Louis were having a detrimental impact upon the health of the people in the St. Louis area. With this idea in mind, she was specifically concerned that the nuclear tests were producing a, um, a carcinogenic radioactive isotope that was kind of spreading all across the community. It's called strontium-90. 
And she believed that the blasts were causing the population around to actually absorb strontium-90 as well as other things, and particularly strontium-90 because strontium-90 is apparently, I'm not a chemist, but uh, apparently it's very close in its chemical makeup to calcium. And since people absorb calcium into their bones, she was concerned that people were absorbing this radioactive cancer-producing isotope, and they were actually absorbing it into their bones. And so she came up with this idea. We're going to do a test. We're going to look at people's bones. Unfortunately, though, no one was willing to give up an arm or a wrist or a knee or anything like that for, us, for her to, you know, take it out and take a look at it. Reasonable, right? So she says, well, where am I going to find bones that I can test? Well, brilliant out the box, out, outside the box idea. She thought, there are a bunch of tooth fairies here in the St. Louis area who maybe would send me the teeth of the, of the babies, the teeth that they're collecting. And so she reached out to all the tooth fairies in the community. And in the next 12 years, she got 300,000 baby teeth. 300,000 baby teeth. And she began to um, take a look at them. The children were given a button exchange for saying, now I don't know if the tooth fairy left money as well, but the tooth fairy would leave a button and say, hey, we're going to use your tooth for science. And they discovered something dramatic. In that 12-year study, the study showed that children born after 1963, as compared to those born before 1963, after 1963, those children were 50, 5-0, 50 times more likely to have that cancer, drug, that cancer isotope, strontium-90, in their bloodstream and in their bones. The result was that the, when, when, when her study was released, it caused, as you can imagine, an uproar across the world, and the nuclear ban that is in place today for doing any nuclear testing above ground, the international community agreed to that based on her study coming out of St. Louis. Here's what they figured out. A little bit of darkness, a little bit of stuff that you can't even at first acknowledge, over time, it impacts in a bad way. A few unhealthy eyes looking at some sight lines of things they shouldn't look at or things that well, we could say it this way. Things that we don't need to see can lead to our soul's infection. It begs a thought, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of a disturbing thought. And that is what, is, what question is Jesus really trying to state behind his, his statement about that the eyes are the lamp of your body? Isn't Jesus asking, what are your eyes seeing? Let me ask it this way. If the light of Christ within you is either enhanced or diminished and infected by what your eyes take in, how bright is your light today? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? I mean, what are you looking at? What are you taking on? Oh, I'm, I'm not talking just about your habits regarding pornography on the computer. That might be a problem. But I mean, beyond that, what are you looking at? What are your eyes inviting in? Are they inviting in light? Or just giving space for some darkness? Where do you focus? Scripture puts it this way. Gives us some instructions on how to manage this. Scripture says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think or focus. Take those kinds of things. Think about such things. It's a different life approach that brings light to your soul. 
Focus, he's saying, on matters of excellence, on what is admirable, because they bring light. See, I know that our present technical world can bring all sorts of dark matters to our souls. We can see things on our screens these days that generations in the past never saw, at least to the degree of ease and availability and darkness of which we can see them these days. You can watch real sexual activity of any kind. You can see war in real time, right on your phone. You can see violence both on YouTube videos of real violence or in simulated video games. You can have vitriolic conversations via social media that raise the blood pressure of everybody involved, allowing my eyes and your eyes, everyone's eyes, to see the darkness of the arguments taking place in real time. Now, those behaviors that I've just mentioned are not new to humanity, but the ease with which we can access them these days is absolutely new. So I'm, I'm not suggesting, friends, that Christians, man, we go bury our heads in, our, in the sand and say, I just want blindness and I don't know, want, want to know what's going on out there. No, I, I don't be that. I'm gonna, I want to be light in the world around us. And so that may, must make us ask, what darkness are we bringing into our souls to the point where we could become immune, desensitized? I never, I never want to see a simulated murder on TV and be casual about it. I've seen that before. Mm -mm. I never want to be desensitized to an acted out rape on a screen. I never want to be immune to the blood and the gore and the death and the sex and the violence. I don't want that to be the norm. I, I, don't, I don't want to be immune to the shock of violent arguments and the language on Facebook. I need, frankly, friends, I need, I need all those sorts of things to be unsettling and disturbing and troubling and upsetting. I need them to be alarming, distressing. I need to experience pain in that moment because invariably those people in those settings are experiencing pain. And if I'm going to be light, I just can't say, well, I'll just take it all in. It's okay. It's not okay. Because if I just become desensitized to it, I will easily stop focusing on what is good and right and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy and my eyes will soon glaze over, allowing darkness to win the war over light within my soul. See, I know that um, when it comes to our viewing habits, there are computer programs that you can put on your computer so that if you wander into a site um, or intentionally go into a site, the program will acknowledge that and send a telephone call to your buddy. And your buddy's supposed to call you and say, what you doing right now? And I get that. If you need some help with that, we know how to make that happen for you here at the church. But on the other hand, I want to say, maybe that's appropriate. Sure it is. But that's a defensive approach. That's somebody looking over my shoulder all the time. Fair enough. But I would say this. On the offense, if the light of Christ is growing within me, I just don't want to, I don't want to live my life because someone may be watching what I'm doing. I want my life to be changed. I need a new life light that is remarkable and frankly, noticeably different than the world around me. That, that I, it's not just I want a blindfold. I want new eyes. We need a new light approach. I want a new positive life outlook and discover 
daily what is good and admirable and praiseworthy so that the light of Christ comes within me. Think of it this way. Tennis players here today, anybody play tennis? What color are tennis balls these days? Yellow or green, right? Some of us are old enough to remember, like in the 60s when we played tennis in school, the balls were white. And some of you are so young. There used to be white tennis balls? Yeah, there did. In the olden days, the olden days, we used to, used to have to go play tennis on our horses and buggies to get there. But once we got there, the balls... <laughs> uh, well, they used to be white. Why aren't they white anymore? Well, here's, here's the... Think about how tennis balls have changed since the 60s. When television was first invented in the 30s, it became apparent that one of the ways in which they could, the uh, producers could draw a crowd in would be to show sporting events on television. Tennis was one of them. And so um, they would show tennis, and they would only have one camera, and so you'd see this white ball going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Everything else was gray or black, white ball back and forth, back and forth until you got to the 60s when color television was invented and introduced to the public and suddenly there were color cameras. And here's what happened. They thought we'll just do this back and forth, back and forth like normal, except, first of all, the iris on color cameras couldn't pick up the white ball as easily as black and white cameras could in the early days in the 60s. And then more tragically or more difficultly, those games or those matches, pardon me, were played usually on clay that were being televised. They were usually played on clay or grass courts. And so the ball that starts out white hits the clay, hits the grass, and eventually gets stained as it's going back and forth, back and forth, until as the game wears on, the ball eventually began to be the same color as the court and disappeared. So all that you were left watching TV was two guys doing this on either end and no ball in the middle. So in the 1970s, the International Tennis Federation said, if we're going to have people keep watching tennis matches on TV, which is a different question as to why I want someone to do that, but that's a different matter. They changed, they changed the ball's very nature. They decided that we have to have a color that will appear natural and will appear easily on television. And they landed on something called either optic yellow or fluorescent lime green as the ball, balls that tennis players were going to use. And you, I don't know if you could buy a white tennis ball these days. I doubt you could. Here's what I want you to understand. That the nature of the game, the very nature of the game was changed due to the delight needed by the iris or the camera. The composition of that ball was changed for the sake of how people could see it. Because otherwise the ball was just blending in with the background. See, I'm really glad if you pray for me about my behavior. Please do. I want to live a holy life. I want to live a right life. I want to invite good and holy and healthy things into me. But much more so than that, I want my life to be changed. I want to be different than the background be behind me. The world can look at, I want the world, I want people to look at me and say, that guy right there is fluorescent green. Well, I don't want to be fluorescent green, but you get, uh, that guy is different than the, be be than the people behind him. Why? Because the iris of those looking at me, I want them to identify me as somebody. There's somebody who has the light of Christ. There's somebody whose very composition has been changed because of the light of Christ working within him.
That's what you should pray for me about. Would you pray with me right now, please? Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. That you would help us, oh God, to know uh, what it means to focus on things that are right and true and good and honest. Things that are excellent or praiseworthy. It's not that we want to stand out for the sake of our ego, but more so, God, we want to be different than the background behind us for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so, dear God in heaven, change us. For those of us who have walked with you for some time, we want to grow increasingly to be more reflective of Jesus Christ. Lord, for someone here who has yet today to cross over the line of faith, I pray that they would be able to say, Oh God, help me to know what it means to have my sins forgiven, to have my life made new, to be redeemed, to be made new, to be changed with the light of Jesus Christ. And this is what we pray together in his name, saying, Amen.